Welcome back to another episode of Going Nuclear with myself, Trevor Hall, and Uranium Insider, Mr. Justin Hune. Justin, welcome back. It's good to see you. Always good to see you. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great because we have a masterful uh, conversation. Masterful, I mean masterful, because, you know, masterful is kind of this regal world word right and when you're talking nuclear energy let's talk about something regal like rolls royce rolls royce smr they're on the podcast today yeah awesome yeah i was thinking about like what what sort of uh feelings come up or thoughts that come up or images that come up when i think about rolls royce and i think about luxury yes uh, quality um yeah, those are those are the two primary things that come up for me: luxury and quality. So hopefully, yeah. that, the same thing will translate to their small modular reactors, and hopefully, not too far in the future. Uh, it's a long conversation with the head of industrial markets, Mr. Harry Keeling. That's this episode, this discussion, uh, and it's it's a superb conversation between the three of us. But before we get there, Justin, uh, we don't. I want to cover too much. Uh, into uh, the micro of uh, uranium. Obviously, the spot price is still moving, a little bit flattened out in the last couple of days. Uh, you know, still a pretty healthy move here. Uh, but you also were on the road, I think it was last week, at a really important conference. Yeah, last week I attended the Nuclear Energy Institute, the NEI's International Uranium Fuel Seminar that was held in Charlotte, North Carolina. That was on Monday and Tuesday of last week had uh, a number of really fantastic presentations. And then, of course, the outside of the conference conference connections, dinners and lunches and meetings with um, various people, industry people. And it was it was a fantastic event. It really was. It was a coming coming together of pretty much all of the North American utilities. And then there was a, a pretty strong international contingent as well. There were representatives from Uranco and Arano, um, representatives from Japanese utilities, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And just some, you know, I'll, I want to keep this relatively short so we can have plenty of time for our, for our con, uh, conversation with Harry. But some high level takeaways was basically the mood in the room was extremely enthusiastic, in particular mm. about the the complete 180 that sentiment around nuclear has has undergone over the past couple of years. Um, the the NEI director Nima he had an introductory presentation where he basically said in years past, there was a table at the conference that they called the table of shame, where they highlighted all of the premature shutdowns of nuclear reactors around the world. And he said, obviously, that table isn't here because there aren't any. <laughs> uh, so uh, Germany finished their self-immolation uh, earlier this year, shutting down their entire reactor fleet. And it appears as of now, there basically aren't any countries currently that are looking to prematurely shut down any of their reactors, you know, and that's around the world. That is a profound, profound shift in sentiment. And not only are countries looking to keep their existing fleets online and life extend those fleets, but there's dozens and dozens of new reactors being built currently and hundreds in the planning phase. It's, it's a full on nuclear revolution. You could really feel that in the room in the conference. That's awesome. Uh, I guess when it comes to shutting down nuclear reactors, no news is good news. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And and the life extensions is the big life extensions and restarts in particular in J Japan. Those have more immediate uh, effects on the market. You know, the new construction we're talking about reactors that are in construction now will come online next year and the year after in five, six, seven years down the road, and 
over that period of time, nuclear fuel will be procured, uranium will be purchased, converted, enriched, fabricated into the fuel. And that demand is kind of staged over many years. But when you have a reactor um, get life extended, especially unexpectedly, like PG&E's Diablo Canyon in California earlier, uh, or last year, they came into the market this year with a pretty chunky RFP for relatively near-term delivery. And that shook up the market a little bit. The Koreans are doing the same thing right now. There's a relatively large RFP in the market from Korea because they their, uh, their government did a 180 on nuclear over the past couple of years. And they have a, a project that was under construction that got tabled in the late 2010s. Well, that is now resuming construction and they're buying fuel for that reactor. So these life extensions have a big, big effect. And just to, you know, and one more high level thought from the conference really is, and this is something that I went, one of the main reasons I went to this conference is from an investing perspective, just trying to figure out where we're at in the cycle, right? Like, mm -hmm. where are we in this investment? We're, this is clearly not a contrarian bet anymore because there were hundreds and hundreds of people at this conference. And even though it wasn't on the investing side, focus is more on the industry side. You still want to understand, like, we're not betting on, uh, you know, $18 uranium going to 25 and uh, the, the industry hanging on by a thread, like 2016, 2017. This is like, we're in the nuclear renaissance. The uranium commodity has quadrupled in price. Um, there's a lot of positive momentum around the sector, investing and for reactors. But where are we? Are we close to the top? And where is there going to be supply coming that is going to address the supply and demand imbalance that we have currently that is going to last for a number of years going forward. And I came away from the conference basically understanding that there's no short-term relief valve on the supply side. There's just nothing there anymore. There's no governmental inventories that could potentially come into the market. You know, In the previous bull market, we were still in the middle of megatons to megawatts. That was 20 million pounds a year of secondary supply coming from warhead downblending. That's gone. That ended in 2013. That's not there anymore. Underfeeding coming from Murano and Urenco in the West is essentially done. That was 10 to 15 million pounds a year. That's not there any longer. Um, you know, the only stories about increasing production, the biggest story is coming from Xatomprom, which is they're claiming that they're going to increase to 100% of their subsoil use agreements, which is 30 and a half to 31 and a half thousand tons per year, starting in 2025. So basically, in less than 24 months, they are trying to expand production by 45%. It's not going to happen. Um, when we, and then we don't have the time to go into the details in the weeds on that. I've shared that in depth with our membership, of course, but um, it's there's a lot of skepticism about whether or not they'll reach that production goal. And either way, this was a huge theme of the conference. The Russians and the Chinese mean business. They are consuming uranium and they are going to be increasing the amount of uranium that they are purchasing and acquiring from uh, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, uh, over the next decade or two. So more pounds out of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, they are going to stay in the East. And the Western market is the largest market in terms of nuclear capacity and therefore uranium demand. So we, we're, I, I left that conference thinking, oh man, um, we're going way, way higher. And, you know, <laughs> and utilities, and this is one more point, my last point, utilities cannot have a reactor that doesn't, ha doesn't have fuel. It doesn't matter the price. 
And yes, the price does affect their bottom line, of course, of course. But the overall operating budget of the reactor, only 15% of that is fuel and only about 25% of that 15%. So three, four, 5% of the overall operating budget is uranium purchasing. So it can go from $74 a pound, where it is now to $150 a pound. They're gonna buy it if they need it. They buy when they need to buy. It's not their incentive to time the market. Uh, because they're not trying to make a profit off of it. Buy low, sell high. They buy it when they need to buy. So uh, there's not a whole lot of overhead supply here that's going to keep the price down. And uh, we're he- we're headed way, way higher. Well, if Rolls-Royce small module reactors are successful in their 25-year plan here, that demand is only going to increase. And you're going to learn more about what that plan is for the next 25 years through this discussion with Harry. Uh, Justin, let's jump over to this because it's a really important conversation. It's a long one. Uh, any feedback uh, by our listeners, please send it our way and we'll be sure to pass that along uh, to Rolls-Royce SMR. So uh, Justin, let's jump into that conversation. Let's do it. Uh, Mr. Harry Keeling, thank you so much for joining us on the uh, Going Nuclear podcast with myself and Justin. Well, it's it's incredibly good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's an honor to have you on uh, because, listen, Justin and I have been wanting to do an episode in an, in an interview that's really focused on small modular, modular reactors. Uh, and you know why not go for the Rolls Royce of SMRs if we could and go directly towards the source? Uh, in fact, it's it's been a long time coming because SMR developers, uh, you know, they're kind of hard to get a hold of. Uh, and I've considered myself to be very lucky to be in the right place at the right time to get in contact with you. Uh, you know, so let's kind of really jump into it, Harry, and and tell us kind of a little bit about your background and what Rolls Royce is doing with SMRs. Why Rolls Royce? Sure, it's a deep, deep question. So, so me personally, I'm I've been at Rolls Royce since 2010. I'm I'm an engineer by background, good good old mechanical engineer, uh, and joined Rolls Royce predominantly, or at least initially, in their defence and, and aero businesses. But I've worked in now nuclear for for over 10 years, initially with Rolls Royce's submarine program. So Rolls Royce as a business, has been making or designing, manufacturing, supporting through life, the submarine plants on the UK's UK Navy's fleet of submarines. Uh, and so we're one of very, very few companies worldwide that has a sort of genuine, and obviously I'm hilariously biased here, but genuinely world-class capability around the through life cycle of a nuclear power plant. And Every just under every three years or so, we deliver a new nuclear power plant to the, the UK fleet up in up to, to Barrow in, in a northern part of the, the UK. Now, having had that capability for a clearly quite significant period of time, about 2015, 2016, conversations started with the UK government about how we could take that world class capability, predominantly in the defence arena. Uh, and take it into the, the civil markets and, and take all of the, the know-how and application uh, and, and bring it into a market that we felt 
it was actually quite overdue because clearly, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in more, the combination of energy security, climate change is, we believe, crying out for um, new nuclear that's affordable, quick to, to deploy and, and clearly carbon free um, has a huge role to play. Um, so for, for me personally, having spent about 10 years or maybe just maybe eight and a half, nine years in the submarines program, this is my full life history now, uh, I, I then came over to Rolls-Royce SMR as the head of industrial markets. And I mean, in, in that time, I've done a nuclear master's as well to give me hopefully more than a pretensive nuclear understanding, but but still very much operating in a, in a sort of strategy and business development role. And I suppose the fact my role even exists, and again, I'm sure we'll talk about this, was also in, in more detail, you know, head of industrial markets. We believe very strongly that probably by near the late 2030s, the bigger part of our market share will not be with the traditional you know, big state utilities that would traditionally go towards nuclear, but actually towards industrial customers, whether that's putting energy through the grid or to private networks, whether it's as electrons or as, you know, as steam, as thermal power, we believe that's going to be a much more significant market and, and able to move much quicker as well. So actually very well suited for the, the sort of the advantages SMRs have around deployment. Um, again, we'll talk about this in more detail, but I don't think in yeah, the relatively short career that I've had in nuclear that there's ever been a more exciting time for the industry and there's a huge amount of interest now on capitalising on what we think is just a much more affordable and, and quicker approach that SMRs bring. That's really fascinating. I didn't realise that Rolls-Royce's, I mean, besides the nuclear Navy reactors, that their kind of uh, advent into small modular reactors for civilian usage was sort of spurred on by conversations with the with the UK government. Yes, and, and we, again, there's, there's, there's clearly parts of Rolls-Royce that you know, it's, it's very important to do the right thing. There's also clearly seizing what we felt was a you know, huge market. Rolls-Royce, and this is PLC, you know, the, the mothership rather than Rolls-Royce SMR, ha- has for, for a long time looked at how we can take you know, this genuinely world-class capability and, and, and diversify away from pure sort of defence contracts and, and government contracts. And it, it's... In the UK, there's a there's a huge nuclear industry, but when you look at the sort of nuclear chemists and physicists that are sort of driving forces for it, you know a significant portion of that very refined capability sits with Rolls Royce. You know, it sits. In fact, where I live in I live in Derby, you know, a relatively small city in the UK, where about fifteen thousand Rolls Royce employees are, are based, and close to four thousand of those are the nuclear engineers and nuclear physicists that are, are supporting the UK program. So it you know, has this huge wealth of capability. And, and was looking to how it could reinforce you know, the, the products it puts into that nuclear market, and and it's not you know, it's not just in the SMR space. There's also micro reactors that we're investigating. It's activity that's there to support things like the Artemis program, you know, space reactors for interplanetary and, and moon missions. These are things that there's just the hotel loads alone quite quickly takes you towards nuclear being sort of the, the generator or, or, of choice. And this is all about just, we've got this amazing capability. We've got the, the understanding, the know-how, the, the sort of technical expertise. How can we bring these kinds of products to market? Because 
and, and you touched upon it earlier, Justin, the, the, the view of nuclear has, uh, and we believe correctly, never been stronger. And it's how Rolls-Royce can place itself to, to realise its potential. Harry, I, let's talk about where Rolls-Royce is right now with SMR development. And I was actually pretty uh, surprised going onto the website and watching some of the media you have there about the the process of construction and development. And the SMR, I'll be honest with you, I mean, it is Rolls-Royce, so it, it looks beautiful <laughs> as far as a <laughs> nuclear, uh, as far as nuclear energy goes. I mean, it looks really, really flashy uh, the way a Rolls-Royce you, you'd want it to be. You know, I think I was surprised with really the size of what you have in the media. So, you know, define what small really looks like in that, in the development where it's at right now, those, the power sure. and capabilities and say, if you were to get uh, approval and license and to go out and build one right now, how much space would you need to build this SMR, and how much power distribution would it generate? Oh, can I, we could spend a long time on these questions. Um, so I'll, I'll start off with the, the look of it, and it was, again, a point we were, we were talking around earlier, that for SMRs to really succeed for the long term and to really help decarbonize, particularly sort of the hard to decarbonize elements of you know, our, our, our grids, you want to be able to put SMRs in as many locations as you possibly can. And th- th- there's a reality, I think, and we, we see, I'm slightly off tangent here, but we see the, the market being in two big waves and probably even a third, with the first wave being SMRs being deployed on existing nuclear sites for, for several reasons, but the predominantly probably the easier, the, the, the quickest to deploy. And you, you have the data that sits around it, so you, you can go about site licensing with, with more speed. But, but crucially, you have local communities who are fully bought in to the benefits of nuclear, clean energy, the jobs. And clearly, that's, that's crucial for things like getting site licenses and, and planning permits and DCOs in, in, in the UK, and there'll be equivalents of, uh, abroad. Now, while those might be the first places that those plants are built, and again, SMRs means because of the size of them, much smaller than large nuclear, you're still talking about you know, hundreds of units in that initial wave globally. Clearly, the much bigger wave is what comes next when there's sort of confidence around nuclear is such that you really will start to put nuclear closer to where your industry exists, where your um, where your energy demands are. And in either of those two waves, how the plant looks yeah, and the people's confidence over the benefits you can bring are huge. And, and there's a very long way of just saying, yes, We've got, we've got a pri- quite a pretty looking plant. And um, a key reason for that is to ensure that when it comes to public acceptance, and this is not a concrete monstrosity, huge infrastructure program that we think, whether it's nuclear or, or any kind of large infrastructure program, this is something that is conscientious, that, that is you know, in keeping as much as possible with you know, the environmental system. Um, so, yes, we think it looks, um, we think it looks, it looks pretty beautiful actually in terms of the the size uh, and i suppose the, the space question uh, and you're right smrs you know small modular reactors you know the traditionally when lots of our competitors look at um the the, the kind of outputs the sort of the outputs that they're considering they tend to be 
in sort of the three, 400 megawatt range, and in some cases quite a lot smaller, and they'll bolt various of their mini reactors together to get to whatever size you need. And, and we're definitely at the top end. We're 470 megawatts of um, electrical output you know, net. Um, it's the same size, if we're, if we're being clear, with some old large nuclear in terms of the power output. I think it's really important to sort of right from the outset to make it clear that what we are not doing is designing a plant for an arbitrary power level. Everything that we are doing is designing a power plant for the lowest levelized cost of electricity. Now, if I step back a little bit in terms of, and this will be some of the things that we believe, well, we believe fairly Rolls-Royce is doing differently to almost all of the other entities in the market. And the first is when it comes to how we manufacture this, because when we look at the actual reactor it, itself, it's incredibly boring. Yeah, it's, a, it's a pressurized water reactor. It's as traditional as you can almost possibly uh, imagine. In fact, with a lot of the conversations we've had with regulators in the, the last couple of years has been, oh, we thought you were going to need something different. It is just a pressurized water reactor. It is boring. We've done that incredibly deliberately because boring means it's straightforward to regulate. And regulate is going to be one of the longest lead leads um, lead items of, of any plan to bring a new plant into a new market. Also, the operators understand it, which means that you can have high confidence getting high availability. The supply chain exists, which means you can have confidence around low cost of ownership through life. So PWR, boring. Where we've innovated and are generally different in this space is how we manufacture then deploy the plant. And the entirety of our power plant, and it's not reactor, not the reactor island, the entire power plant is built as modules. So think sort of Lego pieces, um, each of which is about the size of an ISO container. So three and a half by three and a half meter ISO frames that all of the components of the plant, which are manufactured in the supply chain, are then consolidated in these frames, which are built on a production line in a factory, factory controlled environment, are tested and commissioned in the plant before then being delivered on the back of a lorry, you know, normal lorry on a normal road to the site of the plant. When those modules then arrive at the plant, we have a site, huge site assembly facility that covers the entire site that protects the environment from the site and the site from the environment. So noise like dust pollution, um, but also if it's snowing or it's 40 degrees and sand and dust, you know, we, we can mitigate all of the impact of the weather, which even in the UK, where most of us have a lot of drizzle, just wind can stop you doing crane lifts. Snow and ice on the ground means you can't move around the site. And because we have this enclosed site factory, we can have far greater confidence on how we can build the plant. Which means you can be more confident that you're going to start seeing revenue at a certain point, which makes investors believe it's actually investable and bankable. And finance is by far the most significant single portion of the cost of levelized cost of electricity. It's, it's quite a long preamble, but hopefully you're sort of following me today because the point I want to make is that this is not about an arbitrary power level. This is saying to our engineers, we understand that the biggest issues when you build any large infrastructure project, whether it's nuclear or not, tends to be around integrating risk. It's about um, dealing with the weather. It's about keeping on top of the program. By building in a factory, and we, we believe we mitigate a lot of these 
threats and issues significantly and, and greatly speed up the process of our plant. And so to our engineers, the design question was, you have to build the entirety of this power plant in a factory. It has all to be delivered on a normal road. What is the most amount of power you can then get out of it using a boring PWR? And all of those things allow us to have far greater confidence that you can then build a, a power plant cheaply, affordably, you, know, you can build it quickly. So we believe we can build them in less than four years once you have a site that is ready to go. And for us, the, all of this is about, we needed these probably 20 years ago to really have a go at net zero. Uh, and so therefore, how can we design something that is as deployable as possible? And, and it's, it's a fundamental point here that, and I'm very much going off the tangent, is that for us, this is not a bespoke project. You know, this is a product, not a project. This is a product that we are then having rolling off our production line for a fleet of these plants where we're getting learner effect. And we get that because we have this very standardized design module approach factory factory build. Please jump in, by the way, if you have any questions on any of that, because I'm, I'm going to go back to the questions you raised. But um, I thought that context is absolutely crucial then probably to the conversation we're going to have for the rest of this this podcast. But and I, should I keep going? Because I can, I can keep going. <laughs> I have a million questions, but if you have something top of mind, please continue. Well, exactly. I, want to, I just want to make sure I pick up the um, the, the size point. So, yeah, and it's, yeah. we are not building this for a small plant. Yeah, it's about how we build it, not about the output. So we are 470 megawatts, which is a lot bigger. And that fits in a about, it depends on the particular type of units, but let's call it 35 acres, 150,000 square meters is the space that our plant will sit in. Um, now, in terms of power density... Two football pitches, right? Two and a half football pitches, <laughs> soccer pitches, is the way we would, we would, uh, we would look at it. Um, other sports can be used, clearly. But for, for us, it is it's absolutely about going after what improves the levelised cost of electricity. So you want as much power as you possibly can in this unit. You want to have as much, as high availability as possible um, and, and you want to make sure that your, you know, that the, you know, the overall cost of the program, the speed at which it comes to market, its investability is uh, as good as it as it possibly can be. Um, I'm now going to talk about development, but please, if you have any well, questions about any of that, uh, well, then the reason please... I uh, the reason I asked about the size is because you yeah. know watching uh, you know from afar, watching this the, these developments mm. in SMRs, um, you know, it's the it, the sizes there's a lot of different narratives out there, right? Like, so some, sure, some developers yeah, yeah. are producing enough to, you know, power a neighborhood while some are maybe uh, looking to power, you know, larger mm. municipalities, you know, m maybe smaller uh, towns or municipalities. And, mm. but we're still trying to figure out, okay. And you mentioned powering um, the biggest power consumers of industry, you know, where does that sit in regards to, uh, you know, public utility compared to the commercial necessity sure. for production. And so, like, you know, I think the technology behind SMRs is is incredibly intriguing. I think sometime in my life there will be adoption, you know, general adoption around the world of these things. But the the narrative behind the size and how much distribution to the masses, I think, is still a little bit ill-defined throughout the marketplace. Uh, and now it, tell me if that's uh, a lo logical uh, ob observation. No, I, I think, no, Trevor, I think, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head that 
there's a lot of and there's there's over 50 sensible designs across the different nuclear flavors of large nuclear smrs amrs and fusion and there's many more that are sort of less sensible but 50 sensible approaches to it and large nuclear aside there's a lot of different views in the market about how it's all going to shake down and i suspect the next 10 years will be extremely interesting as consolidation happens in the market now obviously harry keeling me i'm quite biased around our approach um other options are available but for in terms of your particular point around you know the the different approaches to where these are cited the sizes etc i'll go back to my comment earlier around these wave one wave two that we're starting to see in the market and we're definitely seeing particularly in, in europe and now beginning to see the same and inflation reduction act has i think massively accelerated what's going on in america but there's still we see this definite first initial wave where big utilities are likely to order a portion of smrs where are they going to put those when they are maybe they might not be first of a kind because that might be picked up elsewhere but early units that still have whether it's an emotional risk or risk associated with them where they're going to build those they're going to build those in the easiest places to build them and that is not going to be in most cases perfectly next door to industry and so as we see it, and this is again, this is what we are literally seeing in the market now. The big procurement activity crossing you know, across what we just say is our most addressable markets: Europe and uh, and the US and, and North, well, wider North America. It's about targeting specific existing nuclear sites where you're going to build as much power at those locations as you can. Now there will be a second wave, as SMRs prove themselves, prove that they can build time, costs, and, and quality. And that will then open up opportunities then to start putting SMRs and AMRs much, much closer, we suspect, to where the industry or demand is, whether that's for habitation, residential or industry. But there's an honest view here of the first types of technologies to the market will be such have such advantage in terms of their ability to scoop up the supply chain, the customer appetite, the brand, the market, that actually it's a bit like sort of I mean maybe it's not a fair analogy, but electric cars and hydrogen cars. I think in many ways you say hydrogen cars might be a more effective way of doing it. But will the market be there by the time the hydrogen market and the hydrogen industry gets there? And maybe that's not a fair analogy, but it's something that definitely I think about internally, that actually this is going to be at least initially around the business case. And the business case drives, you know, it's driven by the economics. And that's back to my point over how everything we're doing is trying to make the levelized cost of our plants as attractive as possible, because it's going to be a few sites which are going to be done very effectively. And that's where we think us and our biggest competitors will probably be playing in that first wave. There does seem to be kind of a race on right now in terms of the, the various companies with the various designs and SMRs to see kind of who, who's going to be the first over the line, um, which brings me to the Great British Nuclear, a program that was launched by the UK government earlier this year. They have a stated goal of, let's see, 24 gigawatts of nuclear by 2050. Currently, the UK has just under six gigawatts of nuclear. That's a pretty incredible expansion in a relatively short time frame. And part of Great British Nuclear's uh, reaching this goal is setting up this current uh, competitive situation with, with 
six SMR designs that have been shortlisted to be kind of the first, I suppose you could call it demonstration project in the UK for SMRs. So that's New Scales Voyager, uh, Westinghouse, EDF, uh, G Hitachi, Rolls-Royce, and I'm missing one other. Why is the Rolls-Royce reactor design better than the competitors in this particular situation? Perhaps unsurprisingly, I, I won't start talking about my competitors. I, I don't think it's the kind of thing we, we like to do. I think there's lots of really interesting aspects. I think all of the people we're in the competition with. I think what there's, there's many reasons why GBN is really pushing the market. You know, it, really, it's the first. And it's the first to really be clear on the scale and set up the right kind of framework to allow lots of different SMRs to showcase what they can do and, as I say, hopefully be showcased, hopefully selected for an absolute huge competition. And can, can you describe this actual competition a little bit more? Like what's actually kind of going on behind closed doors? How are they going through this, this uh, selection process? So as you can probably imagine, it, it's, it's all sort of incredibly confidential. Um, and, and so I think you'd, you'd have to look at sort of what's publicly available clearly. But the, the intention is that a number of technologies, maybe two, will be selected at some point next year, through next year, um, with then a those technologies being supported for a fleet of SMRs. It's not about one-off projects. This is about a fleet. And, and the UK government, and obviously GP, GBN is sort of an arm of this, you know, UK government has been very clear in understanding, well, I'm supporting the nuclear industry really since we started in 2015, 2016, setting the right kind of commercial frameworks, creating off-take arrangements like contract for difference and regulated asset base which are all very very helpful mechanisms for dealing with the risk associated with either market fluctuations or with first unit risk and again it's why they have you know all of the best technologies have looked at the uk program with, with such interest in terms of unsurprisingly we think we're the best and you never hear roles which i suspect say anything other than that it clearly helps that we are a UK product um, looking to set up in, in the UK. The, 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 there's a key element to us that, again, I suppose I haven't spoken about. I've highlighted why I think we're good in terms of around our construction approach. There's also the fact that we have a very different approach to how we go about deploying commercially. So traditionally, what you would see is you know, a, a nuclear reactor vendor would provide the reactor island and would then find... Um, an entity to do the EPC role who would then take the different aspects of the nuclear power plant, the, the turbine island, the cooling island, and the, the complexities that go around that, who would then take the site, prepare the site, license the site, complete the design, find the funding and offtake. And again, when we look at a lot of the, the lessons that have been learned from a very large number of large nuclear programs over the last 20 years that have been incredibly painful, some of them are driven around the manufacturing approach and the manufacturing and technology integration, which is is a non non is an is a significant reason of why we've gone down the deployment construction approach we have. But what we are also doing is wrapping ourselves around the commercial aspects of these plants. So whoever the customer is, whether it's GBN or another, they are contracting with Rolls Royce SMR 
who then is managing you know, the integrated design of our plant, but also in the integrated delivery. And clearly we have to manage the risk with our customer appropriately, but there is only one entity that they're having to manage and, and work with, working through a lot of the integration issues that you'd see with any kind of nuclear program. That combined with our manufacturing approach, the fact that, that we are you know, the UK SMR, you know, we're, we'll obviously provide a huge amount of export opportunity um, for the country, we believe puts us in very good stead. There's the other sort of really important point here, and you'll I'm sure know this much more than I do, is that there's the electricity grid in Europe, which is 50 hertz, uh, and then there's electricity grid around certain other parts of the world, including North America, that's 60 hertz. Uh, and that has a non-trivial impact on the design. You can think of anything that rotates is therefore a different you know, rotates quicker in a 60 hertz arena compared to 50 hertz. So any pumps you have or any turbines or how your you know, your troll rod mechanisms are, are managed all have to take into account uh, of that change. And so when we look at the 50 hertz arena, for want of a better term, the 50 hertz market, you know, there's only a, a one other SMR that is designing an SMR for the 50 hertz, um, and that's um, from France. And there's only one entity in the 50 hertz arena that is started regulator activity, and that is the Rolls-Royce SMR. And we're just over, two, or nearly coming up to two and a half years into that process. So there's the simple fact that we believe our design is is much more mature in the 50 hertz arena. And I would say this, so maybe obviously I'm hilariously biased here, but the fact that not only is our design more mature, but we are much more mature through the regulator, regulator activity uh, are all things that we believe gives our bid um, a position of strength. Harry, I, I was, bear with me with this. It's kind of a long-winded, long-winded way to get to my question. Um, no, no, please. But I was, I was reading a little bit of history of the uh, British inv- inventor, George Stevenson, who uh, maybe you're familiar with as a mechanical engineer, but he was kind of given... Uh, the nod as being the inventor of the steam locomotive. Uh, a national hero. National hero. <laughs> so obviously he was, he took the technology made steam power mobile and was able to uh, obviously transport not only coal, but in, in quick time, more goods to people throughout, uh, throughout Britain uh, as, as the rail line was continued to get built. You know, we, we, we can we can go back and, and talk about that history, but there is like this cultural significance that I keep coming back to between George Stevenson, the steam powered locomotive, you know, the rocket that he that his uh, his, his uh, machine was titled and how it outlasted and uh, really wiped the competition out uh, single handedly in, in, in just a couple days. And now you have, you know, Rolls Royce, which is also a national icon of engineering, and and, and power and distribution uh, that you th- that the United Kingdom has had for such a long time. So there is this cultural significance uh, there, and I'm just wondering if if that is in the back of the mind of the company, as far as kind of this historic this historical context of design engineering and putting it to use for a greater good and progressing uh, we as a society and as a people to reach a next level of progress. And then what it means for 
adoption on a grand scale? Uh, what is this going to take for not only just Rolls Royce SMRs, but all SMRs to get the nod uh, on a big on a big scale for people and societies and governments to be like, this works. We need to allocate capital to it as quickly as possible. So I said that was going to be long-winded, but those are the kind of the narratives that I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. working with in my head right now. Yeah, and I mean, starting off with this of the cultural piece, it's not lost on anyone at Rolls-Royce SMR what an unbelievable personal opportunity it is for someone working in, in the company that we are. And again, lots of people now in Rolls-Royce SMR didn't come from Rolls-Royce. Um, and actually, so we got to very much a great diversity of, of thought and, and capability. But um, talking for myself, if someone came from Rolls-Royce, you, know, you were surrounded by these kinds of icons, you know, modern day icons of engineering um, and manufacturing capability, just walking around the office. Uh, and so you know, that, that aura of you know, the way to behave, the way to think, the way to sort of treat your customers, and it sounds slightly flippant, but you know, it was, it's just part and parcel of working somewhere like Rolls Royce, so almost take that part that as a given. What what is, and and clearly there's always been whether it's working in our area business or working in defence, you were doing something that was you know, either driving trade or it was providing defensive security for for you know our country and customers. Yeah, you know, that that was take as a given. I think what, at least for me, but I think I, a lot of my colleagues would echo this is that we're doing something that that's going to save the world. You know, we, we genuinely believe that such is you know the the product that we are in the process of bringing to market and such is the need that actually this is somewhere that Rolls-Royce and Rolls-Royce SMR can can be a massive force for good and that you know we need to be careful about them not being unrealistic of the challenges that we still have to come overcome but because of then the Rolls-Royce call it mental capability the physical capability the learning that we can bring to bear on it we, we genuinely believe those are challenges that are you know it will be exciting and fun to overcome mm-hmm. um and and so for us it's a it's a very exciting extremely exciting future genuinely i've never worked anywhere like this where you, you we, we all feel like we're singing from the same hymn sheet walking in the same direction and doing something incredibly important i think on um and, and and sorry, Trevor. This, the second part of your question, just to make sure I've like adopt like like the how much scale of adoption do SMRs need for, um, you know, just kind of a tidal wave of demand where yeah. it's gone from so, you know develop research and development to actual you know implementation on a global scale. Yeah. So uh, again, I, I keep going back to sort of this wave one, wave two sort of approach, and wave one are. The big utilities, you know, state actors across Europe, across you know, entities like the, the GBN in the UK, that are meaningfully talking around hundreds of units by, by 2050, you know, c- credible numbers of units. In reality, for for someone, something like Rolls Royce, and this comes back to them, it's, it's very much a standardised design with standardised Lego pieces that can be replicated across the supply chain. For us, we just need to make sure it's it's more than one because you need to have a number to justify the factory approach, which then unlocks all the benefits that I've alluded to already. So when, when we're talking to our customers, it's around a fleet. And for us, a fleet is anything more you know, between five and 10. 
Now, the market, as such as we see it, is not demand driven, it's supply chain driven. The, the, the market is, even just that first wave is just vast. And, and, and as the consequences of not achieving net zero become clearer, we suspect we're only, that demand will only increase. And so actually for the, the market as a whole, much bigger challenges around the supply chain and, and it's the capability. And it's not just, you know, bits of metal, it's, it's people actually as well. It's the investment communities that can help, you know, turn, turn the gears that allow this all to happen. It's setting that up and allowing it to be repeatable, which as a whole SMRs is you know, a key part of the value proposition. But again, for us, it's so much more than that because of our factory repeatability approach that means that we'll plan to build initially one a year in the UK from 2024 onwards. If we need to replicate that in Eastern Europe, and our plans are they absolutely will, then we'll have a Central European hub and a North American hub and an Asian hub. And it's just a replication of that scaling the ability to supply by the demand. As I say, our concern is not about the demand, it's that how the hell we build these quickly enough. And it's back, I mean, Justin, to your point about the sort of the look and the feel and the importance of the brand. And this is going to sound like sort of horrendous Rolls Royce arrogance here, but the, the brand is, is hugely helpful is yeah. in, in every way because um, what, what this is not about is just, you know, obviously orders are absolutely crucial, giving confidence to the market. But actually, it's so much more about hearts and minds that if someone is 16, 17, 18 now trying to work out what what degree they want to do, what kind of profession they do, well, we want to make sure that Rolls-Royce and Rolls-Royce Smars, you know, an industry, that they, a business they want to move into. And bear in mind that nuclear is actually a very small part of an SMR. You know, it's 20% of the cost. We, yeah, the number of manufacturing engineers and product managers and HR and everything, BD people like me, we need so many of those. But what gives that person who's 16, 17, 18, who perhaps doesn't have the same sort of legacy concerns of Cold War nuclear weapons that perhaps previous generations would have, and for them, nuclear is genuinely a force for good in helping deal with net zero. But why, why would they come work for us rather than another? And that's something where the brand, we when we hope, will continue to be incredibly strong. So, and how you quantify that as an asset is, is obviously very hard. But in terms of giving us more confidence as we need to grow and grow hugely, that we'll find the people to enable us to do that. Very well said. Um, I have so many questions, but I, I know we don't want to make this a three-hour interview. Uh, I do have time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so do I. So I suppose we could we could go a little bit longer. Um, I suppose what's sort of top of mind for me after everything that you just shared with us, which thank you so much. Um, in your words, this design is a quote, boring PWR. Can you, can you give in kind of layman's terms, uh, some idea of what are some interesting design elements to this SMR besides just the boring actual type of the way that the reactor boils water to turn a turbine and generate electricity. Like what, what are some of the safety elements of this design? Because I know that, I know that uh, that's one of the biggest concerns around the general public. When you talk, when I talk about nuclear to anybody, mm. first two things are say, what about Chernobyl? What about the waste? You know, of course, then I told them Chernobyl had no containment dome and uh, there are no reactors operating like that anymore. And then the waste is like, everybody's fearful about the waste, but to the industry, the waste is one of the brilliant elements of, of nuclear 
uh, nuclear power generation is there's such a tiny amount of waste that's highly, highly regulated. It's never been an accident, et cetera, et cetera. But talk to me as if I knew nothing about nuclear. Why is this SMR, uh, why is this the way to go in terms of expanding electricity and safe carbon-free electricity uh, in the future? Unsurprisingly, they're questions we get asked quite a lot. And uh, just working backwards, I suppose, if I stick with waste, and I'm occasionally quite guilty of trying different approaches on waste and seeing how they land and then working out which ones are sort of the most effective. Um, and I'll, I'll try the slightly more sort of hostile version of these today because I think the, you sort of allude on a really important point that, and, and actually when we're talking to our, again, wave one customers who tend to already operate nuclear space, waste is just not part of the equation. But back to my earlier point, we are operating in democracies and while the first sites will likely be on the existing nuclear spaces, public opinion is, is obviously absolutely crucial. The, the amount of waste that, nuclear in, in as a whole generates is 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 so so small when you know but, but unfortunately people see it glows green and, and all that kind of thing and, and so you need to work through that but an smr and a lot of our competitors are the same right from the outset are looking at ways they can reduce the amount of waste that is generated through life and that sort of the principal piece that people obviously want to reduce is the spent fuel that is removed every two years or so from, from the plant and then is stored on, on site. And exactly like you say, when it comes to regulators, the first thing they want to hear is that you are managing waste in the traditional way because it's it's so safe. You know, it's the ALARP approach, as, you know, as low as reasonably possible. The confidence is there, the, 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 the processes, the approaches, it's all very, very well understood. And the volumes we're talking about are so small. So over, over the 60 years that our plant will operate, powering, say, a million homes, just over a million homes carbon-free for that period, the amount of waste we're talking about in terms of volume is about two and a half London buses. And whenever I have a waste conversation, there is no silver bullet here when it comes to generating power. I think everyone gets their heads around that fossil fuels generate quite a lot of waste and that it's bad and they understand why it's bad. And there's there's almost a sort of a a view that, well, luckily, wind and solar, and, I, and I'm a huge advocate for wind and solar, I must stress this really clearly at the point, and you know, I think we won't get to net zero without this, but the waste that will come from the wind industries and the solar industries, there was some reports done in Europe that said that for each of those, it's about 50 million tonnes of waste going into landfill by 2050. And, okay, the numbers could change and there could be recycling, but it is vast, vast quantities and you compare that to the waste from a nuclear industry, which is unbelievably tightly controlled and managed, and the costs are picked up by the operators. And that's another really important point that, and obviously at different countries have slightly different approaches, but in the UK, part of getting a license, among lots of other very sensible things, is proving that you have the right kind of waste management decommissioning approach, and that you are paying into a decommissioning levy from the outset of your operation which then pays for the waste management and decommissioning at end of life. So the funding is there. The, the knowledge of how we're going to do it, it is managed. Um, now, there's, there's still a point here that it might be two and, two and a half London buses, but a lot of the waste there will generate heat and radioactivity for tens of thousands of years, which is clearly 
is, is a significantly long time. It's a serious load you put on future generations. And as I say, our, our view is that compared to other industries, that is still a very good place to be in terms of the amount of putting on future generations. But we'd, we'd definitely rather do less, sorry, do provide less to waste. And what we are extremely interested in is that we're at the beginning of what we believe is a nuclear renaissance. And yes, the the, the, the door we push open by SMRs, but actually as interest investment is increasing in the industry, you'll see advanced modular reactors, many of which have some really interesting properties about how they can use waste from existing um, SMRs and PWRs as their fuel, which not only allows you to release more energy from the original fuel at the outset, it also allows you to greatly reduce the volume of waste that then goes into long-term disposal. So you reduce it by about 80%. But also the radioactivity of that waste is also greatly reduced. So rather than tens of thousands of years, it's hundreds of years. Now, now, clearly, as an industry, that's where the industry will want to get to. But there's a lot of R&D required in that. So for, for SMRs, and you know, I, I suspect it'll be the same for lots of SMRs, we're going down the what is the safest route today that regulators will understand and believe, and that is the existing waste management route. It was a very long way of answering what I think was quite a simple question, but it's for me just it's so important that people believe that there is no perfect, just magic approach here that you get a load of fuel with no waste anywhere. And actually, the nuclear industry is probably the only, in fact, I think it is the only industry that right from the start includes the costs and the management of that waste through life. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a really important point. But uh, besides, besides the waste, could you talk just really briefly on some of the design elements of the Rolls-Royce SMR that, um, that make it unique and, sure. and make <laughs> it uh, competitive against some of, some of these other uh, these other contestants in this in this contest. This, this, this Does it look like the dealership in Mayfair that I walk past every time I <laughs> go to the Kitty Grill? Are you still want to buy some Mars? Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I, I think there's there's lots of things that you know our competitors and ourselves will be be saying that are differentiators, and I think in reality a lot of us are all trying to move in the same direction as quickly as possible. Um, I think there's there's a few areas that we would point to that we are different from an operator perspective. And, and again, apologies in terms of your understanding of, of nuclear. When in a PWR, you, know, you, you have your reactor pressure vessel, your kettle, that's your thing for generating um, your, your heat. Um, in terms of how you manage the reactivity you know, through the, your, your primary circuit, in a traditional large nuclear power plant would be done with a combination of control rods, which then are managing your reactivity, but also then boron, which is a, is a poison. It's, it's, it soaks up neutrons. And you would traditionally spend a lot of time in infrastructure measuring constantly your boron levels, adding new boron in, taking boron out, you know, reprocessing that, and then also emitting some waste in liquid waste to the environment. And that, that's what happens today in a nuclear power plant. Boron is also not particularly nice. It turns into boron acid, which becomes quite nasty when trying to um, manage sort of your operative management of a plant. And so actually what Rolls-Royce SMRs approach is to 
not use boron at all, instead use more control rods. And that we feel gives us not only better control of the plant, but also reduces the amount of processing we need for removing boron from clearly what's quite a reactive environment, but also means we don't have to discharge any liquid waste to the environment. So it's a it's a sort of it's perhaps the only slightly novel thing that we're bringing into our incredibly boring um, pressurized water reactor. In terms of the rest of it, as I said, though, it is using very traditional uranium fuel. Um, yeah, so four point or just under five percent. Um, again, mainly due to ensure that there's as broad a supply chain for fuel as, as possible. That you you aren't starting to stray into proliferation concerns territory in terms of enrichment. And um, yeah, again, very very standard um, in terms of the you know, it's a sort of what we call a three loop compact pressurized water reactor. What one point then you mentioned it around safety and it's something that again obviously we have to talk about and be very clear on and you know when you when you look at you know the the lifetime of civil nuclear power plants you know people point to Three Mile Island point to Chernobyl clearly and, and Fukushima um, obviously Three Mile Island was a incredibly long time ago and unsurprisingly things have changed significantly in terms of control both in terms of how the reactors controlled and designed but also managed. Chernobyl, the design wouldn't have been allowed to be built in the UK or the US you know, 50 years ago, um, let, let, let alone now. And, and, and Fukushima was, you know, it was an issue around the, the control of heat from the plant, which allowed hydrogen to be produced, which then caused a hydrogen explosion, so a chemical explosion, which then released some radioactive gases. The nuclear industry is like the aviation industry, um, where if there's ever an incident to allow your plant to get anywhere close to being licensed to operate, you'd have to be able to prove that whatever happened in the past could not happen again. And, and again, this is sort of the same for us as well as perhaps some of our competitors that you have to be able to prove and take the Fukushima example in particular, that how the, the plant manages thermal sort of um, thermal release in certain situations like a shutdown do not require any intervention, physical or, or personal or control base from any human, soft human that gets in the middle of all of this um, at, at all. You have to prove that is not required. And, and so what you'll see is terms like um, passive safety, um, natural circulation, walkaway safety is sort of the terms you now see in the industry and that we and others will very much point to because it, it's just a, another example of how in any eventuality, right from you know, a simple seven fully laden crashing into your plant or a tsunami hitting it uh, and, and making you lose power from the site that your plant cannot go through those same kinds of issues that have been seen previously. Right. Harry, I, uh, you had mentioned a couple of things I wanted to follow up with you on. Uh, one is regarding uh, the construction and then it's also the, the, the life of the SMR. Uh, the construction. So what's really interesting, and it's like, oh, this is a brilliant idea of building SMRs where uh, current uh, nuclear power stations are located. And that obviously makes sense because that connectivity most likely is there. I assume that brings down the cost of SMRs. on, And I, I'm going to say it for myself because it makes sense as a mining guy on a brownfield site where if you're building more 
a brand new location on a greenfield site, there's probably going to be added cost to that construction engineering having to and risk and, and risk and risk. Okay, thank you for that. And you know, and connecting uh, to the grid. And and I just uh, give us. Can you give us an example of where a Rolls Royce SMR is being built on a more of a brownfields, uh, you know, previous you know a, a location that was a previous uh, nuclear power sure. reactor. And, and, and Trevor, I mean, you, you mentioned you know, a few of the recent key points here that it's not it's not just a nuclear power plant that you need to right. be able to use power. You need to get the power to where you need it. Right. And <clears throat> when we look at many existing power stations, and, and not just nuclear, but it might be a, an old coal plant, for instance, one of the things that's very important is that the grid infrastructure can cope with half gigawatt of power. And it's not just the substations to get it into high voltage, but also there's demand in the area so that you are confident, again, back to sort of the investability of this project, that if that plant is built, it'll be able to produce and then transmit its power through life continually. Just to keep touching a few of these other points, though, that there's also th- some quite key bits of infrastructure that you get on an existing nuclear site that are important. Things like the cooling systems. And I don't necessarily mean just the sort of cooling towers, but actually more just the infrastructure to connect you to the sea or, or to the river, which is very much a sort of non-trivial part of traditionally large nuclear power projects. And so there's a, there's a huge interest in then allowing yourselves to go, oh, OK, I'm confident that we'll be able to access the, the water levels we need because it's happened for 50 years already. There's also just the roads to actually get to the site. And, and that, again, that's a, use that expression again, a non-trivial concern when we look at some greenfield sites is that even in our case, where the whole of the plant is being designed to be transported on the back of a you know, normal, quote, normal lorry, you still need a road there that exists and confidence that you can get there throughout a year, regardless of the weather, to be confident you can build your, your programme. Um, so, so all of these things are really, really important that makes you more inclined to look at a um, an, an existing existing site. And that's why even talking around having a lot of the data around the seismic conditions or the weather, the wind that you might have at a particular site. It, again, if it's an existing site, an existing brownfield site, one of the things you'd look for is do the do you have that data, which will then be absolutely a, a requirement for getting a, um, a site license, proving that you know, in certain situations that you know, you, your plant remains safe. There's the other side of this, and again, we haven't really spoken about it, but there is the a brownfield site would probably tend in some cases to have a lot of industry nearby already. You know, let's say it's a coal plant or even a, a nuclear plant. It will tend to already have industry in the surrounding area. Now, when we look at sort of a 470 megawatt plant, you know, which ours is, you're, it's very unlikely, unless it's sort of a hyperscale data centre, that you're suddenly going to have a perfect 470 megawatt demand next door to the SMR. So you're always going to be looking to put energy through the grid, whether that's just pouring it into a state's grid or whether it's a sleeved PPA power purchase agreement through the grid, hundreds of miles to wherever that particular demand is. But one of the major advantages of SMRs is, is the fact it opens up this ability to provide power, whether it's electrical or thermal, privately to users in the vicinity. And 
the again it's always slightly different on the, the country you're looking at what the overheads are to get power across the grid and you know there might be licensed distributors there might be just the transmission or distribution overheads but it quickly adds up uh, and it can it can double the cost of your levelized cost of electricity and, and that's that's a given you know, in in most countries but having the ability to actually take power wholesale costs you know, privately from an SMR is unsurprisingly hugely, hugely attractive for industry where in many, many cases, the power will be a significant part of their their, their OPEX. Uh, and, and so brownfield sites are likely to have opportunities for more brownfield sites in the vicinity, which makes it even more interesting. Is there a sweet spot in there? Because listen, there's a number of uh, old reactors that are obviously still working and there's organizations out there that would like to see sometimes see those close. We have seen a lot of reactors, you know, Germany made headway of closing a number of their reactors earlier this year. All and of now them. Being all. Powered by coal. And all, all of us. So, you know, I mean, is there a sweet spot in there of working and building these SMRs on a brownfield site whether it's in operation or in care maintenance, or does it even really matter as far as costs? In, in terms of on existing site, yes. sorry. Um, so clearly, if it's one that's operating today, you're going to have more confidence over all those different parameters that I mentioned in terms of the grid infrastructure, data around the site, transportability, etc. Um, but even one that, I mean, when we look at, yeah, one of the reasons we chose the half gigawatt, just under half gigawatt of power, is that marries up quite closely to a lot of coal plants or mm. factors of coal plants across Europe, which unsurprisingly is a big market for, for us. Um, and in, in some cases, those coal plants have already closed, in which case that's a site and a local community dying out for new power to come into that area. Um, and others, it's they are going to go too soon. To be honest, the sooner we can get involved in those conversations, the more confidence we can have on the cost being kept low. Right. But as I say, you know, for a when we look at a a new site, about ten percent of the cost can be preparing the site. And so clearly, if a lot of that work has already been done, you know, just the pouring of concrete, you know, making sure it's got to the right strength and characteristics, those things make our projects uh, and and the products we want to put on them much easier and quicker. And what happens, you mentioned 60 years of life in these SMRs. What happens after the 60 years? Well, the, the first point to say is that we're designing it for at least 60 years. Okay. And, and I mean, I think when we look at what's happened, particularly in the US recently, but also in France and to a less extent in the UK, one, you'll tend to have a huge amount of conservatism, huge amount of conservatism in all of the views around the life of every component across the plant. And obviously those are tracked continually through life. And what we've seen, as I said, in those countries is that as they've got to the end of their prescribed life, it's been a business case, but in some cases a relatively simple business case to extend the life of the plants to enable them to keep producing power. You know, the demand has not gone away. In fact, quite, quite the reverse. Um, and, and look, so we are designing and regulating this for 60 years. I'm pretty confident when we get to the end of that, um, in many cases, there'll be interest to extend the life further. Again, it'll be case by case. But in terms of, let's say it is 60 years, we're then into the decommissioning 
phase of our program, which is just as important as any of the other phases. And I spoke around the Lego approach to building the plant. Well, it's not just for the construction, it's also for in operation, but then also in decommissioning is that that Lego approach allows us to easily compartmentalize and remove those components ready for um, end of life, dismantling, reprocessing and, and recycling. The, the most important aspect of all of this clearly is around any of the components or elements of fuel that are, are still radioactive and, and those then obviously get treated through the waste management routes that um, we've already discussed. Harry, I think I only have a, a couple of shorter questions for you to maybe wrap up our chat. Uh, on your website, on the Rolls Voice website, it states, uh, quote, the next phase of our development has begun with the creation of a new company, Rolls-Royce SMR LTD. Is this new company uh, going to be publicly traded? And when do you expect it to uh, be spun off? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, probably have to ask my shareholders uh, for that. <laughs> I mean, in, in reality, the, the focus for our whole organization right now is to get this program to market as as quickly as possible. We're, we're extremely lucky to have four shareholders who make up Rolls-Royce SMR Limited at the moment. So Rolls-Royce is the majority shareholder, hence the name and the brand. We then have Constellation Energy, which I'm sure you know in the States, but they're the, the world's largest operators of nuclear power plants who unsurprisingly have been hugely helpful in helping us design our plants to make sure that it, it can be operated um, um, as easily as possible and as cheaply as possible through life. Uh, and so, you know, hugely, hugely helpful. We have the BNF, who are um, a, a French firm, and then the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund. So th- those four shareholders all bring really interesting assets um, and, and advantages to our programme, and, and our focus will be on realising this, I'm sure. But there's also a fifth entity, who, while not a shareholder, has still been hugely supportive, and that's the UK government. You know, we, we've been we received the largest ever grant given by the UK government two years ago, two hundred ten million um, pounds, and and who are unsurprisingly also being hugely helpful in conversations we have then globally. Um, you know, the UK um, SMR and, and really realizing that potential. The future has many possibilities, Justin. Um, I would love to buy some Rolls-Royce SMR shares at some point. I, I can tell you that for sure. Indeed. And lastly, uh, it seems like like most of our conversation today is, has been around uh, these sort of initial developments within the UK. But what is what is the company seeing in terms of international demand? Sure. So net zero isn't really a UK problem uh, only. <laughs> it is a global problem. And so right from the very start, yeah, this is a... One of the reasons why we're doing such a standard design is to realize the same products in as many countries as possible. That you know, just from a business case, that's clearly clearly helpful. Until about a year ago, the UK, well, the UK was leading, we believe. But until about a year ago, the, the second big big area of interest was was Europe, and particularly Eastern Europe. So Czech Republic, Poland, Finland, Sweden, a lot of countries that. You know, perhaps already have nuclear today were most um, incentivized to move away from from gas uh, whether for energy security purposes or for or for net zero challenge or both and and that's where we're seeing the most pool where big state utilities were initiating 
back to my wave one analogy, the, the beginnings, the wave one procurement activity. What's changed recently, and, and again, other views are available, but the US in particular is likely to be bigger than the rest of the world combined in terms of SMR market. Mm. The Perhaps the, not being an American, obviously don't necessarily put words in Americans' mouths, but I think in some ways the state-by-state approach made it, in some ways similar to Europe actually, navigating a countrywide um, approach a little bit more challenging. But what has changed is the Inflation Reduction Act, which has created a much more significant pool and incentive to both set up the supply chains and the factories that I've mentioned previously, but also for our customers to get the financing that they require to bring these projects on as line as possible. And, and so I think there are many, many countries outside the US and Europe and UK that will be SMR customers probably in that wave two. But wave one is, and that, I say hundreds of units in that wave one is um, Europe uh, and then North America. Harry, this was a great conversation. Uh, I think Justin's right. We could keep it going, but I do want to be cognizant of of both of your time because uh, I have a feeling, uh, Justin, I think you'll agree with this, that after this airs, there are going to be a ton of people with follow-up questions. So uh, I tell you what I do. Once we get some of this feedback, I'll send it your way and uh, we can sure, prepare, for, prepare for next time because I think uh, you know, the next year for not only for Rolls Royce, but all of SMR development is there's going to be some, some big headlines out of this sector. And it's, it's just going to be fascinating to watch, but thanks again so much for kind of opening this up for us. And it was a great chat. Well, it's, it's absolutely you know, my pleasure, Trev, Trevor and Justin. Thank you again for, for getting, getting me on. Yeah. I, I reiterate the point that we believe unbelievably strongly that SMRs are going to be the future and in both a positive way is that they can be, but, but also they need to be. And, and at Rolls-Royce SMR, we, we feel like we've got a genuinely transformative way of, of doing it. And you know, we're, we're genuinely excited to try and save the world. So very keen to talk again. Let me know if there are any follow-up questions and um, hopefully we'll, we'll meet Dare I say it in the actual flesh? Uh, I know that's <laughs> right. That's right. Well, saving the world is never dressed so well. I mean, that's what. That's what the <laughs> it's just so there. It's awesome. Uh, uh, Harry, thanks again. And uh, all right, everybody, that's a wrap here on this edition of Going Nuclear. Uh, boy, we gotta figure out the next guest, Justin, because this one was really good. We gotta... <laughs> all right. Agreed. All right. See you, everybody. We'll see you next time. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Going Nuclear, Justin, or myself, and the Clear Commodity Network team and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.